0: turn to 2nd Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new with us here today, we've been walking through um, the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and, and discussing the church and the role of the church. And so um, again, if, you're, if you've been with us, hey, some of this is uh, a repetition, but it's okay because if you're new with us, you need to know this. Paul has written these two letters to Timothy, who's this pastor serving at this church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a a hub city, a city, a a port city, where where trade and all of these things came, and and there was all kinds of culture here. And So Paul writes these letters to Timothy to encourage him and to encourage the church. And this, this epistle, this letter of 2 Timothy is, a little more urgent in nature because Paul knows that his death is coming, okay? And so everything that Paul says in 2 Timothy is with this sense of you have to know this, right? And so we've walked through the first two chapters. We will be in the first 13 verses of 2 Timothy chapter three this morning. How many of you pretended to be someone when you were little? Like, tell me who. Come on, you're raising your hand. Tell me who you pretended to be. Joe Montana, does somebody say that? So, you said Hannah, Montana? Joe Montana, Hannah, Montana. Very different, but we'll take it. All right? Anybody else? The Lone Ranger? Anybody? Lone Ranger. Do what? Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman there you go. Yeah. Superman, maybe? Like, right, anybody jump off your roof? No? I knew it, Kenny. I knew it. All right. So right, we pretended to be things, right? I remember I I, I, I played lots of cowboys and Indians when I grew up. You know, I had I had a six shooter cap gun and I had a bow and arrow and my brother and I would go back and forth. So one day he would be a cowboy and I'd be the Indian, and then the next day he would be the Indian and I would be the cowboy. And we always had so much fun doing that. So we pretended to do those things, right? And then I got older and I pretended to be um, lots of NFL football players. Um, I I pretended when I realized that I was not Probably going to be built for a quarterback This is where you laugh because I'm not but uh, Anyways, (laughs) I was not meant to be a quarterback. I I I I decided I was going to be Howie Long Some of you may know who Howie Long is. David's event for the Raiders. Like I was like, I'm going to be Howie Long. And so I'd line up and I'd do that whole thing, right? But, But as kids, we pretended to be something bigger than we were, right? So here's the thing. We're not much different sometimes as adults. Because my fear is that oftentimes we pretend to be someone we're not and we pretend that we have it all together. And we want everyone else around us to think we have it all together. When in reality is, you don't. And it's okay. It's okay. Like, why do we come in the church and go, man, I'm doing great, and you're not? Like, this should be the place you come in and go, I need help. This should be the place you come in and declare every day, I need you every hour. And I need you, and I need you, and I need you, and I need you. Right? And so my my fear this morning is that we pretend. And what happens is, when we pretend, we become defined by the world. Right, So our aim is simple this morning. Be careful not to be defined by the world, rather be defined by Christ. Be careful not to be defined by the world, rather be defined by Christ. And stop pretending. Stop pretending. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty hard stop in the last days okay anything that happened after pentecost is considered the last days so the disciples were living in the we are living in the good job y'all got it good man we can move on quick this morning right Okay, so anything in the last days. But Paul says, hey, there's going to be difficult times. How many of you have ever walked through difficult times? Come on, right? And you're still here. That's the reality. There's going to be difficult times. And so Paul says, hey, in the last days, there are going to be some difficult times. And then listen, verse (laughs) 2. He begins to explain why there will be difficult times. Look. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Anybody? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. There's the pretend, right? And he says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as James and Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. So before we get to verses 10 through 13, I want us to see what Paul is saying. And, 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 And instead of walking through each one of these sins that Paul lists, right? Because we would be here all morning, okay? Of of walking through all of those things. Because it's a long laundry list of things and probably doesn't include everything, right? We're going to break these down into three categories. But I want you to see this one is that, that, that Paul is calling us, Christ is calling us, not to be defined by the world. This is what Paul's saying. Don't be defined by the world. This is what's going on. And and listen, Paul's writing this letter to who? Okay, some of you said it. Timothy and to, okay, and to, we're getting there. Timothy and the church, right? That's who he's writing the letter to. And he's saying, hey, there's these people in the church. He's talking to believers. Church, church. This is scary. But we're gonna break it up into three categories, okay? First category that we looked at is narcissism. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Narcissism. And all of this does is it defines this the glorification of yourself. Look what he says. Look what he says. He says this for people will be lovers of what? Self, right? This is what narcissism is. Look at me, look at me, right? And and don't sit there as a a church person and go, that's not me, I don't ever do that. I'm here, aren't I? Like, stop for a second though, right? Because the moment that you and I take Jesus off the throne, we put ourselves on the throne. And, 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 and the moment we take Jesus off of the throne, what happens is we begin to focus on what I want and what I need and what's going to make me the most happy. And so you become enthralled about you. And so, so this plays out, and, and when you're inconvenienced, you get angry. Stepping on any toes this morning? Anybody ever been inconvenienced and gotten frustrated about it? Okay, some of you are honest. All of you should raise your hand. We all at some point get inconvenienced about something. you are like, right? Somebody drove by my truck this week and took the mirror off and drove away. And I don't know who did it. That's frustrating, isn't it? Right? I'm just being transparent with you this morning. That's frustrating because it inconveniences who? Me. Right? But that's when self is on the throne. When I take self off the throne and I put Jesus on the throne, it's an opportunity to show grace. It's an opportunity to love. It's an opportunity for me to go, it's okay, Lord. It's all yours anyway. It's not mine Right And so, so we have this idea of narcissism The love of self And that and What happens is that when, when, when it's the love of self Our ideas become truth What we think in our brains Becomes truth We're living in this culture aren't we Like, like Whatever I think of Whatever I dream of That can be true like there's no there's no going to the word of God and saying what is truth? It's just whatever I make up. Because I'm the smartest person I know. Right? That that's narcissism. That's what's going on and and, and so I'm not sitting here declaring all of us narcissists. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is the category in which Paul is unpacking some things for us and saying, "Look, um There is no room, listen church, there is no room on the throne of your heart for you and Jesus. It's either you or it's him, but he will not share the glory. And we gotta take ourselves off the throne. This plays out too, and and, and we live in a culture of where we we push and we push self-care but but here's the problem in that there's it's self-care is biblical we are to take care of ourselves we are we are commanded in scripture to rest and those are good things we are we are told not to grow weary of doing good we are to do those things. We're to take care of ourselves. The problem is, in our culture, we have taken the idea of self-care and we've justified self-indulgence. I'm going I'm to take care of myself, so I'm just going to go over here and indulge and do whatever I want and whatever makes me happy. Which leads to the second category, which is what we call hedonism. Whatever makes me happy, pleasure, I can do whatever I want and it's going to be good because it makes me happy, right? It makes me happy. We, we live in this culture, right? Because we tend to have lots of feelings, don't we? How many of you are like, I have lots of feelings? Ladies, Thank you, Drew. Yes, right? We have lots of feelings, right? We have lots of feelings. And oftentimes, whatever we feel, we act to be true. When everything we feel is not true, right? You ever had someone say something to you? And you just kind of felt like, ooh, I don't don't like that. Uh." And you felt that, and then you acted on that. You acted on that feeling of how they said it, and and it started this big blow up. Rather than stopping and going, hey, is this how you meant it? They go, oh, no, I'm so sorry. That is not at all how I meant it. Right? That's what happens when we believe every feeling we have to be true. And so we take these feelings and we go, man, I'm going to if it makes me happy I'm doing it and we begin to act like toddlers if you're not going to make me happy I'm taking my ball and I'm going home right isn't that what we do right we, we do that in our jobs I'm Not gonna make you're not going to do what I want you to do Mm-mm. we do that in our marriages well fine you know what? You're going to act like that? I'm going to act like that. We walk away, right? We do that. We do that with our kids. How many of you, your kids, have not made you happy this week? Thank you. Okay, right? Like, there's there's just moments, right? They don't make me happy. Ooh, right? And we lose it. We explode. We take our feelings, and, and we just get really big with them. When, when we got to calm down. Because here's the deal. When our kids have big feelings, when our kids have really big feelings, my wife posted this week on Facebook, when our kids have big feelings, they don't need our feelings to be big. They need peace in the midst of their chaos. Right? So we can't trust our feelings and everything making us happy. How many of you have ever been in a circumstance that you desperately wanted it to change? You wanted the circumstance to change so badly. One of my biggest fears sometimes is that for us as believers, in the midst of a really hard, difficult circumstance, that you want to change. And for whatever reason, it's not changing. We get so caught up in trying to make the circumstance change, that we reorient our whole life to make the circumstance change on our own. And in that moment, it becomes hedonism. It becomes, I want this to change because I don't like going through it. When the reality is, God is teaching you something. He's walking you through the circumstance to see him in a clearer way to see him in a better way and ultimately to glorify him so we, we we have this idea of narcissism we have this idea of hedonism and then we have this idea of materialism right this this idea of just get it all i want it all right i i, I just I, I gotta have it all because somehow some way, more money, more money will solve everything. Guess what? It doesn't. Because the more money you have, the more stuff you buy that you don't need. Isn't that true? How many of you adults in this room could understand that? Right? We do. Money doesn't solve anything. Jesus does. You realize this that in in an average day of an American life, so that's you, you see between 4,000 and 10,000 ads. Let that sink in for a second. In the average American life, day of an an American, you see between 4,000 and 10,000 ads telling you you need this right you want this and you can't live without this isn't it right and and we bite into that don't we we bite into that it's okay to admit that we all do i'm no exception right we bite into that we bite into materialism that somehow things are going to make me happy. Some tha- somehow these things, this stuff, these material things are going to satisfy the need I have or the want I'm longing for when only Jesus can do that. Everything you buy will ultimately let you down. Like, Well, preacher, my boat's pretty awesome. It's going to break down. It's a boat. Like, that's just the reality, okay? Everything you buy is going to let you down. How many of you have ever, like, really, like, saved up and got really excited about buying something? Like, you saved up for it, and then you bought it, and it was kind of like, huh, that's kind of like, I mean, I thought it would be better than that. Like, I'd be more excited about what I bought now that I saved up for it, and then I bought it, and it's kind of like, eh, Right? it will always let you down because Jesus is meant to fill that. He is. Well, well Paul goes on, and he's going to say this. He's going he's to say that, that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They, the appearance of godliness. that Look, I am, I am doing all of the right things. Everyone can see me and how I worship. Everyone can see me and all the things that I do. And I am great and I am grand. And I have got religion down to a T. I show up every Sunday morning. And I sit in the pew and I sing songs. And I listen to that dude talk and then I go home. I am doing everything right. And Paul says, they're here, but they're void of the tower. God, They appear to be godly. They have no power. Because what, is, what, is, what does Paul say at the beginning of 2 Timothy? We are given a spirit of what? Power, love, and self-control. That as believers, through the spirit, we are given a, a, a power that, that doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And so when we live our lives in such a way, that, we, that, that our life is defined by power. It's defined by the power of God. Because here's the deal ultimately, what's going on here is Paul's revealing to us who, at, at the very heart of human nature, we are. And so he says, hey, there's, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And then he says, avoid them, avoid these people. And then he's going to go on and says, "For among them, those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth." And then he gives an example of Janas and Jambres and Moses and 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 as he's done over and over again. But but listen to me. Here's the deal. Um. He says that they sneak into households. Well, this Greek word here that Paul's is using is, is often the same word that he used for house churches, that they would, they would sneak into households, they would sneak into churches, they would make their way into the church, and they would, they would um, pray on weak people, specifically weak women who were not sure about the truth and didn't know what was going on, and they would, they would pray on them. Paul says avoid these people at all costs. This is not who you are called to be. You're not called to chase after these things. So so then in verse 10, for the sake of time this morning, let's go, verse 10, he says, you, however. This is a contrast statement, right? Here's, Here's what it looks like for you not to live this kind of life. Don't live this life. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions endured, I endured, yet from them all the Lord, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Not only are we taught to be defined by the world, but we're to be defined by Christ. He says, Paul says, you, however, live your life this way. And Paul says, hey, you've watched me. You've watched how I lived my life. You watched my faith and my love and, and my endurance and my patience. Timothy, you've even seen it at at, at, at Um, Antioch and Iconium and and Lystra you saw the things in which I endured and Timothy by the way all believers all those who attach themselves to Christ will be persecuted they will be Paul declares that this is what's going to happen and so if we have these three things that we're to avoid and narcissism and hedonism and materialism then 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 what are the opposites of those? Well, the opposite of narcissism is humility. It's humility. It's it's thinking of others, as as Paul says in Philippians 2, counting others more significant than ourselves. Is that we back away and go, wait, Jesus is on the throne of my heart, not me. And I humble myself, and I realize that there are times that, that, that I do fall into this category of narcissism, and I put myself on the throne, and I desperately cry out to God, God, no, I need you on the throne. And I humble myself before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and say, God, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And we live a life of humility, not of look at me, look at me but a life of I'm surrendered totally to Jesus. And then the opposite of hedonism is integrity. <laughs> it's integrity, it's, it's living a life that says, hey, this is, what you see is what you get right here. I, I, I'm, I'm open and I am going to live a life that's in accordance to God's word. That, that truth is not what I think it to be, truth is found in the word of God and I'm going to live my life according to this I'm going to live my life according to this it is a life of integrity that even when it's hard even when the decision is really hard I'm going to live my life according to the word of God and then the opposite of materialism is generosity God, it's yours, and I'm going to live my hands. I'm going to live my life with my hands wide open. Father, what you give and what you take away is your prerogative as the God of the universe. It's none of mine, and it's all of yours. Father, please give me a heart of generosity and not a heart of greed. Because here's the reality. Jesus exemplified all of this for us when he came to this earth and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for you and I. Lived a life of integrity, never sinning before the Father, not once, and then generously giving his whole life for you and for me. And so here's the deal, church. We are called. We are called to live this type of life. A life of humility. A life of integrity. And a life of generosity. And it will be hard. It will be hard. There is no way around it. It is hard to live and to walk with Jesus on a daily basis. It's hard. I'm not standing here pretending it will be easy because it is not, it is difficult and the world will persecute you. But listen to me, I'll close with this. I was a junior in high school. I was taking chemistry with Coach Snodgrass who had been there for like 70 years. Um, so like when I got him, I was like, man, he's, this is crazy. He couldn't even stand up to teach us. He sat on a stool the whole time. Coach Snodgrass did. Wasn't even a coach anymore. Like, he was just teaching chemistry. But Coach Snodgrass would give us 100 chemistry problems a night. It was, like, the worst assignment I've ever had in my life. Like, tell you, 100 chemistry problems a night. And then we would come in class, and his classroom was, like, um, levels. So, like, it was kind of like a theater-type style. We had seats, and we would sit down and—, and um, and, and we would all kind of sit in our seats and then we would try to count, like where's Coach Snodgrass gonna go and what number am I gonna get and do I have that answer, right? Because out of 100 problems, I'm going, eh, we might have a quarter, right, maybe. But Coach Snodgrass would do the numbers and he'd start like one, hey, you're, Jason, you're going up. And we had to go to the board in front of the whole class and we had to write the problem out. And Coach Snodgrass would just sit there and look at us and if we were doing it wrong, he'd just grunt. Like, ah. And then you'd just stop. And he would just wait. Literally just was terrifying. He would just wait. But then he'd go like number two and then he'd skip to like number 37. So he'd throw everybody off so no one knew what number they were gonna get. And so everybody in the class is sweating. It's like, and it's happened every day. And, you, and literally you get to the board and like you're just sitting there and it's like if you don't know how to work the problem like you just write the problem out as slow as you can like you know the problem that's on there just as slow as you possibly can and then you just sit there and he would just wait and he would just wait he would just wait and he'd finally go can somebody please help them it's like oh that's the worst thing ever like your peers have to help you to get this chemistry problem right and so I tell you that story because of this, is that I, I had struggled. I had struggled through chemistry, and it was hard. And, and my dad saw Coach Snodgrass somewhere in the town, and my dad knew Coach Snodgrass because, like I said, he'd been teaching there for 100 years. So um, my dad just mentioned to Coach Nodgrass, like, yeah, Brady's really struggling in chemistry. And, and my dad wasn't saying that to 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 say hey you need to help him my dad wasn't saying that hey i'm gonna pull him out of chemistry because he's struggling right my dad was just saying coach Snodgrass, hey he's really struggling um you know and coach Snodgrass looked at my dad and said yeah he is but i'll tell you this tom that's my dad's name tell you this tom if he wasn't struggling he wouldn't be learning and he wouldn't be growing and I remember my dad telling me, that. I was like, I don't like that. Like, I don't know. That's not, no, we're not doing that. Until, until I got to college. And for whatever reason, I got put in chemistry in college for majors. And I, could, I couldn't get out of the class because I had to have chemistry and it was the only time they were offering the class and I got thrown in it and I'm sitting there and the professor's up here and he's, he's writing and erasing. And I'm like, why is he erasing? They're like, oh, this is just overview. And I'm like, overview? I, I don't know what he just wrote on the board. I don't know what you're talking about, overview. So then I found out it's your chemistry major. Anyways, I made an A in that class. You know why? Because Coach Snodgrass knew if I struggle that it taught me something. Church, it's going to be hard to walk and live a real, authentic life with Jesus. But as you struggle in it and the circumstances come, God teaches you so much. He grows you so much in the midst of that circumstance. Let it happen. Struggle, but keep pursuing and chasing after Jesus. And live a life of humility, of integrity, and of generosity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, God. We're grateful that we have you, who is the King of the universe, who's called us, Father in your name to live abundantly even in the struggle. Father, this morning we come before you and God, we want to respond to you. We want to respond to your word, Father. May we surrender ourselves this morning to you. In Your mighty and holy name, that we pray. Amen.